Hanukon. 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 You're listening to Hanukon Podcast, highlighting citizen Potawatomi Nation issues, members, and more. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. Just search Hanukon Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Paige Willett. In this episode, we'll talk to CPN's Tribal Court Chief Justice about current civil rights issues, hear from a tribal member about an unexpected turn in her employment due to the coronavirus, and learn how CPN Department of Education funding helped a student discover more about himself and his passions. Studying freshwater fish near the Pacific coast of California seems somewhat counterintuitive, but Citizen Potawatomi Nation member Max Murray spent his time in graduate school at the University of California, Los Angeles, snorkeling on his knees in the desert to find them. A lot of the places that we're snorkeling, you're kind of just like, you know, doing like push-ups through a creek. You know, it, it looks, probably looks bizarre if you were just someone walking by you know, just kind of sticking your face into little, what looks like little puddles, you know, and and looking around. The Delonis family descendant tried to fill knowledge gaps about freshwater fish for his dissertation. He graduated with a Master of Science in Biology in the fall of 2019 with help of scholarships from the CPN Department of Education. It's because of, like, the support that I got from the tribe that I never had to take out a student loan for my entire academic career. CPN scholarships are $2,000 for full-time students per semester or $750 for part-time. It's a flat amount regardless of tuition owed. CPN Department of Education Director Tasha Zintek enjoys hearing stories like Murray's. So Max is a wonderful example of somebody who is very passionate about aquatic biology and has taken it upon himself to study to do research and now has found a career pathway that aligns with that. And then he took the next step that we really hope any student feels comfortable doing and coming to us to ask about, which is reaching it back out to their, their tribal nation to learn how they can become involved and knowledgeable and invested um, with their tribe. Growing up in Southern California, Murray always spent time at the beach. He enjoys scuba diving, swimming, and picnics on the sand. While at UCLA, he used that love of the outdoors to study freshwater fish and the parasites that coexist with them in an area of the country that supports little of their habitat. It's kind of grotesque, but it's something that not not a lot of people, especially in the United States, are really interested in. Uh, It kind of has has opened opened this pathway to, you know, maybe look into more stuff like this in other states or across the U.S., His thesis discussed two types of freshwater fish brought together by the St. Francis Dam completed in 1926. The dam fed the Los Angeles Aqueduct, which redirected much-needed water from the Owens River to one of California's most populous and highly developed areas. The dam collapsed and caused major flooding in 1928, and historians labeled it an infrastructure catastrophe. Murray studied how the fish and their individual parasite systems now cohabitate as a result of human intervention. It's always been really interesting to me that kind of interface between these animals, plants, whatever it may be, and they're likely to be endangered or threatened and development and, uh, you know, that kind of goes on in, in this region of California. 
Murray logged many hours in the field finding and collecting fish, as well as many more in the lab dissecting them and pinning his observations. He said the out-of-pocket costs of research quickly multiplied. Without the scholarship from CPN, completing his thesis would have been difficult. I couldn't, I couldn't be more grateful and, and appreciative for it, honestly. Changes in the Education Department's scholarship program allow students to use the funds in a wide variety of ways, whether it's for books, housing, transportation, or research. Zintech knows personally how the improvements have affected scholars over the years. She received CPN funds while obtaining her degrees as well. When I reflect about my own experience as a citizen, Potawatomi tribal citizen, who um, received the tribal scholarship, um, whenever I was attending school, I think about how that funding, even when I had a full scholarship that paid for the tuition, tuition and even housing to my, um, to my institutions, I still needed that funding to pay for all of these extra other supplies. And so that support made a huge difference in my mental and emotional well-being as a student, and it allowed me to focus on my studies. After completing his bachelor's in marine biology, Murray began working for Ecorp Consulting Incorporated. The environmental consulting firm contracts with private businesses, government departments, and other organizations. Its staff complete topographical studies and biological assessments of land before development projects begin to reduce their impact and meet legal requirements. After completing his master's, the company hired him full-time. Murray's research comes in handy during his day-to-day -day duties. You know, we were kind of uh, mostly focused in on, on things in rivers and streams in, in coastal California. And because there's not a lot of water, the things that live there are kind of, uh, you know, kind of threatened and, and, and a lot of them are endangered. When deciding to attend graduate school, two professors attracted Murray to the UCLA program. However, he questioned if he saw himself as an academic. After much convincing and support, he decided to return. And it really kind of like changed my whole... Uh, kind of my whole outlook on, on myself as an academic and um, kind of the things that I actually really like to do and the questions I like to ask. Um, it was a great opportunity. So, I mean, that's kind of how it, the ball got rolling. It got rolling really late for me, honestly. College was a time of personal growth and change for him. And Zintech and the rest of the education department help students through those transitions. Outside of scholarships, they provide advising and an intern program as well. We never push for um, what we would, what we might think individually as an achievement. It, we want the students to define that, and then we want to meet them where they are and help them achieve that. So sometimes that does include helping them consider alternative pathways that they haven't yet thought about, or really digging deep to consider what their passions are, and then asking the question, well, why can't you pursue that? Murray was the only Native American in his graduate program. One of his professors, Donald Booth, studied Native American culture while completing his master's in anthropology and knew some about Potawatomi history and culture. Extremely excited, super supportive. And, you know, when he knew that I was getting, you know, this funding from the tribe, he was like, we need to make this like really count. Murray continues to work on publishing his findings. Now he's taken on the challenging task of adjusting to a full-time job in the midst of a pandemic. After growing accustomed to working on his feet while researching, completing office work through a computer feels lackadaisical. However, Murray occasionally travels for field work by himself or in a small group. Whether in the office, at home, or in the field, he loves the feeling.
it, you know, when you find something that's totally new and unknown, it's almost like you're, you know, you're exploring the deepest part of the ocean or something. And, and this is something that's right in, you know, really pretty much right in my backyard here, you know, so it's, it's really kind of cool. Visit cpn.news backslash education for more information about scholarship opportunities with CPN. Tessier family descendant Rebecca Gardam moved to Colorado earlier this year to work for the Veterans Association at the Eastern Colorado Healthcare System. She has a master's in teaching the visually impaired, and the VA hired her as a blind rehabilitation specialist to teach blind or visually impaired veterans orientation and mobility skills. However, the hospital quickly moved her to the Occupational Safety and Health Team at Rocky Mountain Regional during the pandemic. She spent her time gathering and uploading data on the hospital's controlled air purifying respirators, essential personal protection equipment for staff. She shares her experience taking on this unique and unanticipated task. I have, I have truly wanted to give back to veterans. My grandfather is a veteran and all of his brothers. And um, right there at our Heritage Center in Shawnee, they're honored. All the veterans are honored. And this is my way of giving back to veterans, um, you know, who serve us is it's in my own small way, you know, basically when I get there in the morning, I travel from all over the hospital and I get my eyes on each capper and I check for functioning properly, making sure that they're working to the best of their ability. If one is not, for example, if one has been dropped and there's a broken piece on it, or if the battery is not operating, um, I will pull it off the floor immediately and I take it to the safety team's industrial hygienist and they will repair it and I document all of it into a database and I send it to the incident command every day. I definitely want to make it a point that it's not just doctors and nurses, but there's facility maintenance men who have to go into the havoc systems who need to wear them. There's housekeepers who are in and out of the rooms and they need to make sure that they have them. So there's, there's a lot involved on the back end of serving individuals with COVID or any, any particulate um, airborne disease. Being on the safety team, I would get up at 1.15 in the morning and I would do my best to like braid my hair and have it pulled away and then suited up for work. And I started tracking cappers at 3 a.m. So by the time I got to the hospital and got ready, I would, we did it all night long. And um, at first I was the only individual tracking cappers. And then um, the incident command realized that there was such a benefit to knowing where they were all the time and knowing who needed them and if they needed repair and to have somebody monitoring it 24 seven. So they ended up, there were two of us who alternated shifts. And um, so we had very, very long days um, for months and months at a time. I'd work like 12 hour days to 17 hour days. Um, I was really driven by the staff who they saw you coming and they were so grateful that somebody was coming to take the capper to make sure it was fixed. Or another thing that I did is I always made sure all of the batteries were charged. And there may be a night where the staff were so bogged down with work and I feel like wherever I'm meant to serve is where I need to be. As I 
walk the hospital, I am constantly praying for each and every individual, the housekeepers, the maintenance guys, the men, the engineers on the safety team who are working day in, day out, the, the incident command. There's so many intricate parts, and I realize that it's not, my job isn't just to come and check the batteries and make sure that this is functioning, but there's, for me, there's a spiritual um, awakening for me is that I really drew closer to Mama Gosnan, our God, to say, <sighs> maybe being the smiling face for somebody who's getting off a 12-hour shift and totally exhausted and letting them know, like, hey, you know, I'm here to help you out. Like, you go and rest and, you know, or bringing a little piece of joy, you know, because I would go from one department to the other. And I did have a lot of people, you know, in the emergency department who they're like, man, when you first come in at 3 a.m. and they've been working all night and they're just beat and I'm like smiling and just, you know, cause I was praising God all the way over there. So I'm just filled with joy and love and peace and kindness. And they're just, I, I really spread that. At the end of May, I was awarded with a safety award for my efforts. And I was given a 14 karat gold coin. It's very special on one side and it's heavy. Um, on one side, it has a picture of the Rocky Mountain Regional um, Hospital, and on the other side, it says safety through education and awareness. I was blown away by this award, and I'm so grateful. So as soon as COVID operations took force, I was pulled because I was a new employee, and I wasn't, um, I didn't have my clinic open yet, and so then I was sent off to the safety team. And then my clinic at Blind Rehab, they started serving veterans and making sure that all safety precautions are met. And my supervisor's like, we need Rebecca back. <laughs> um, you know, she's got veterans to serve. And so I was just released back this week, actually. And I, um, I have face shields and everything else that I have to wear there. And I am responsible for making sure that it's cleaned and we clean our area. Uh, there's a lot of time we spend cleaning <laughs> each space. My brother and I, we try to speak Potawatomi as much as we can, and we also pray in Potawatomi quite often. And for me, I sing um, in Potawatomi, and I just really um, try to thank God for the blessings of being Potawatomi and having a wonderful family line and getting these the education and the job opportunities that I've had. Iguian, a heartfelt thank you to Gardam and all of the other CPN members who have shared their stories on how the pandemic has affected them with both the Hanukkah newspaper and here on the podcast. We've enjoyed talking to all of you. Email your story to us at hanukkah at potawatomi.org. That's H-O-W-N-I-K-A-N at potawatomi.org. Protesters calling for examinations of police procedures and civil rights took to almost every major city across the U.S. in recent months. 
The country has seen corporations rethink their logos and advertising, the dismantling of statues and monuments, and the Washington NFL team agree to replace the offensive interpretation of a Native American as its mascot. Citizen Potawatomi Nation Tribal Court Chief Justice and Indigenous Rights Scholar Angela Riley sat down with Hanukkah Podcast to discuss these issues as they relate to Indian country. Yeah, I think these actions are incredibly important. Um, they are by definition symbolic acts because the statues and monuments themselves are symbolic of past events and our history. Um, but at the same time, they're much more than symbolic acts because they represent a groundswell of changing opinion by Americans and not just people of color, but um, of society as a whole, of really trying to, I think, um, reckon with the, the history of the United States, the process of colonization, the impacts of slavery, um, and the ongoing costs of, of that history to people living today. Um, so, you know, I have been very heartened to see that there's been a lot of support for um, revisiting some of these things. There's a wide range of activities that have taken place. Some of them have been, you know, more socially disruptive, like including graffiti and, and rioting. Um, so there's been a spectrum of events. But at the core of it, the core of the protest around markers that commemorate, if not actually celebrate, um, some of the people in the past and events of the past that have actually caused enormous harm to people of color. I think being able to be critical of those and even engage in activism around removing those from public spaces, I think has been a really positive um, and overall a positive event. So speaking uh, of looking at history and re-examining, um, there's also been a lot of focus on teaching about the Tulsa Greenwood Massacre in 1921 and these other historical events that a lot of people don't know about or never covered in school. So what has yet to be accomplished in teaching Native American history specifically? Yeah, I think this is a really important facet of um, coming to terms with our history and of movements towards social justice and racial justice. And I draw heavily from my experiences working with indigenous peoples around the world. Um, I've spent a good deal of time in Australia and New Zealand and Canada, um, all of which are other settler nations that have similar colonial histories to the United States. And one thing that's been really remarkable to me is that in most of those other countries, um, there is a much more express recognition of the process of colonization and the removal of lands from their indigenous populations into European hands. Um, whereas by contrast is something that really gets glossed over in American history. And um, you know, this of course I think has really devastating impacts for native people because most of, much of our populace is growing up without really much knowledge at all about what happened in the process of colonization. So it's a really steep learning curve. And I have found that people are A, very ignorant of the history, um, B, embarrassed that they know so little about our own history as a country with regard to indigenous peoples and, and tribal rights, um, and C, remarkably open-minded about learning about it they just have never had anybody tell them anything. They have so little experience. So um, I have found that to be very heartening. 
And uh, I think, so I really feel like the fundamental level, the education at the, the most basic level is one of the key components of, re of really moving the needle with regard to race relations in the US. Um, and you know, with events like the land run and the romanticization of the formation of the state of Oklahoma, for example, um, is in and of itself something that really needs to be taught in a much more nuanced way. Um, if students are going to learn about the land run, they should also, of course, learn about the removal of the tribes to the Indian Territory. They should learn about the subsequent Supreme Court cases like Lone Wolf v. Hitchcock, where tribes challenged the power of the United States government to break their treaties and to take our lands, and the Supreme Court upheld that power. So all of those kinds of things should be taught as part of a really, really critical historical moment for our state um, and not you know, just one kind of very romanticized version um, of how Oklahoma came to be. So we're talking about statues and memorials and things like that, uh, but there's also marketing and advertising that plays a part. You wrote an opinion piece published in the New York Times in June titled, Aunt Jemima is Gone, Can We Finally End All Racist Branding? What compelled you to write that piece? It was inspired by, you know, where the country was going in terms of protest. I've written extensively about Indian mascots and um, and names and monuments and all of those things in the past in my scholarly writing, which is much, much longer and much more in depth and a lot less easy to, um, to access for a lot of readers. Um, so it's something that's been on my mind for a long time. My co-author is an intellectual property um, professor at Berkeley, and she and I have written in the past about indigenous rights as well. So it was really um, what we saw as a critical moment to try to really draw a thread between the Black Lives Matter movement, the um, efforts by those fighting, you know, the anti-racism, um, and trying to, you know, really make the American public sort of realize how symbols and monuments do matter and how they reflect a particular vision of the country, one that excludes um, excludes at least the equal rights of many people. Um, and so we just saw it as a really powerful moment to draw on all of that activism and all of that momentum to highlight, um, you know, the ongoing problematic nature of the of the Washington team's name. Uh, so, so it just it was a convergence of events, and it seemed like the right time. And to me, I, I've I've done a lot of research on the name of the Washington team. I've done a lot of writing on Indian mascots in general. To me, the name of the Washington team was just such a no-brainer. Um, its roots are so clearly racist. They are based in um, you know, actual public documents and information regarding putting bounties on the skins of native people, including children, to remove them from territories for white settlement. So it just, um, I felt completely, um, felt very passionate about it. And it's something that I really, you know, I wrote with that passion in mind. And it has been really incredible to see the swift movement by the team um, in light of, of course, you know, increasing social pressure to change the name. Being a lawyer and CPN's chief justice, how does law play into this discussion? One thing that I think is important for me as, uh, you know, as a Potawatomi tribal member um, is to really think about how native governance and issues that relate to Indianness 
both converge with the anti-racism movement in the United States in general, but also depart from it. And part of that, of course, is understanding that Native Americans experience enormous racial discrimination in this country, just like other people of color do. Um, in my own experience and, and talking and knowing so many people in Indian country, and let's say particularly in places like border towns, the rates of incarceration of Native people are disproportionate to those of other minorities. The rates of violence against Native women are on reservation are higher than rates of violence against any other women of color in the United States. Um, and the list goes on. So the racial discrimination component is a shared experience of people of color in the United States. And I think it's really important that we're part of a coalition of an anti-racist movement. At the same time, there's something really unique about Indianness in the United States, and that's tribal sovereignty that we are members of Indian nations, that we operate and um, run our own governments. We have all the powers inherent to our sovereignty. And so as a justice for me and thinking about the role of law, I've really tried to focus on what I have written about as good native governance. That the best thing we can do to protect our tribal sovereignty is to live our sovereignty and to be good governments, to be functional, but really to just you know, be thriving indigenous nations. And so for me, that's the, the most thing, the place where I think I can make the greatest intervention or be the most support to tribal sovereignty is to um, uphold the rule of law, to engage in good governance, um, and to you know, be part of a thriving native nation. Read Justice Riley's piece in the New York Times at cpn.news backslash Riley NYT. That's cpn.news backslash R-I-L-E-Y N-Y-T. Hamicon Podcast is produced and brought to you by Citizen Potawatomi Nation's Public Information Department. Our director is Jennifer Bell. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find what you listen to. We're also on Facebook at Citizen Potawatomi Nation and on Twitter at C underscore P underscore N. Visit us on the web and find digital editions of the tribal newspaper at Potawatomi.org. That's P-O-T-A-W-A-T-O-M-I dot org. Until next time, I'm Paige Willett. Miigwech Nikanek, Bawamina. Thank you, friends. See you later.